This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Thank you for downloading the webinars podcast from Bitesize Bio, the missing manual for bioscientists. The full version of this webinar can be viewed by navigating to bitesizebio.com slash webinars and clicking on the name of the sponsor, which can be found in the list on the right-hand side of the page. Hello, this is Amanda Welch welcoming you to this Bitesize Bio web seminar which today is sponsored by Kyogen. Kyogen is a Netherlands-based holding company, is a leading global provider of sample-to-insight solutions to transform biological materials into valuable molecular insights. Kyogen sample technologies isolate and process DNA, RNA, and proteins from blood, tissue, and other materials. Assay technologies make these biomolecules visible and ready for analysis. Bioinformatics software and knowledge-based interpretation, interpret data to report relevant, actionable insights. Automation solutions tie these together in seamless and cost-effective molecular testing workflows. Kyogen provides these workflows to more than 500,000 customers around the world in molecular diagnostics and human health care, applied testing and forensics veterinary testing and food safety, pharma, which includes pharmaceutical and biotechnology companies, and academia, life sciences research. Today's presentation is titled, Next Generation Sequencing Overview, Step-by-Step Guide to NGS Workflow, and is being presented by Niall Lennon, who's the Director of Genomics Research and Development and Clinical Development at the Broad Institute in Boston, Massachusetts. Dr. Niall Lennon has spent over 10 years at the Broad Institute's genomic platform, developing and applying methods to support research across a wide range of areas, including infectious disease, epigenomics, microbiome, mitochondrial disease, and cancer. Niall has worked on every major next-generation sequencing platform and currently leads a team of scientists focused on novel sample preparation techniques and clinical assay development. As always, we will have a question and answer session after the presentation, so please type any questions that you have into the questions box, which appears on the right-hand side of your screen, and I'll put them to Niall at the end. So now, over to you, Niall, for the presentation. Thank you, Amanda. Hi, everybody. Um, it's a pleasure to join you this morning. Uh, as Amanda said, my name is Niall Lennon. I am um, I've actually recently changed title. I'm now the Senior Director of Translational Genomics here at the Broad Institute. Um, and today I'm going to give you a little bit of an overview on some aspects of next-gen sequencing and sample prep. Really, the focus will be today on sample prep, and I'll tell you in a few moments the specific things that I'm going to cover. Um, before we begin, uh, although I'm sure most people are aware, I think it's useful to set the context, uh, and this is how I think about uh, sort of maybe the fundamental split or difference between what we would term traditional sequencing and what's now known as next generation sequencing. Of course, um, for people who've been working in this area, it's been called next generation sequencing for um, probably a whole generation now, and so we've, we've kind of painted ourselves into a corner with the terminology. Um, so oftentimes you'll hear people refer to what we do today as massively parallel sequencing, um, uh, just to move away from that next-gen um, title. But the major difference for most um, purposes, of course there's always uh, variations on this, but for most purposes, if we're talking about DNA sequencing, what was the traditional paradigm uh, for DNA sequencing at the, uh, in the 90s and early 2000s, as we sort of went through the Human Genome Project and, and the projects that followed it, was um, the process by which DNA samples were prepared for sequencing was usually utilized a, a bacterial um, system um, where we would fragment DNA, ligate fragments into plasmid vectors, uh, transfect those vectors into those plasmids into uh, bacteria and grow uh, colonies of bacteria, pick those colonies. The bacteria serve the purpose of amplifying, clonally amplifying your uh, fragment of DNA by picking colonies and then amplifying from the plasmid. We were setting up um, capillary sequencing or Sanger sequencing uh, instruments generally, which could produce, you know, a couple of hundred reads in a run, depending on the system you were using. Um, 
the switch to what's now known as next generation sequencing, one of the one of the major switches. There were mainly two were uh, were changes in the how the samples were prepared and then how this how the sequences were detected. And so the preparation shift in paradigm was actually moving away from um, bacterial cloning vectors into um, amplification on um, substrates. And so we moved away from uh, plasmids in favor of adding um, you know, linear oligonucleotide adapters in most cases. Then those um, adapted fragments were clonally amplified on some substrate. The substrate varies between the uh, technology platform that you used. Some of the early ones, such as the 454 technology, for instance, amplified these molecules on the surface of beads. Others um, amplified on a, a lawn of oligos on that last slide. But generally, all of these systems moved away from uh, bacterial amplification. And that allowed for uh, massively increasing the scale of that uh, amplification step. And then the detection technologies changed such that the uh, detection of sequences by fluorescence or whatever your readout was, was able to be uh, massively parallelized so that we can now produce billions of sequence reads in parallel compared to the hundreds that we used to use. And so that's, in my mind at least, some of the major differences between what we would have termed traditional and now next-gen sequencing. Of course, we can't give a next-gen sequencing talk without showing this graph. Uh, this is um, somewhat obligatory at this point, but it does illustrate a point, and that is that uh, the cost of producing sequencing, in this case, the metric used is the 30x human genome cost, but it, it applies to uh, many other metrics, has dropped precipitously um, with the uh, advent of some of these technologies. There's just a couple of um, technologies illustrated here. A lot of the inflection points come from the introduction of a newer um, version of a technology that can generally produce more data more cheaply. Uh, and as you can see, the, the graph is actually already a little bit out of date. And so we're, um, you know, with the latest versions of the sequencers, we are now um, pushing sub $1,000 um, in some cases. So this is really why the field of modern genomics and NGS has really become so um, exciting, um, why it is used in so many applications is really now because it bec has become more cost effective to produce the data. And so the data now can be produced um, not just on single samples, but on many, many samples to power um, studies. It can be um, produced on microbial samples, human samples, viral samples across the board. And that the sequencing technologies have enabled um, these applications by, by dropping the cost to make these experiments more affordable. So uh, just to put this in context, um, this is certainly not a talk about the Broad Institute, but just to show you, um, for, uh, for instance, and the uh, change in the rate at which we are processing samples here at the Broad uh, in our genomics platform, um, this is just an, uh, an illustration of um, the trend across the globe as these technologies have been adopted. Uh, and what we're showing here is just um, a snapshot of the cumulative amount of production of uh, various uh, data types, um, exomes, genomes, and transcriptomes, human, at the Broad Institute's genomics platform over the last um, five years or so. And what you can see is that as the technologies have gotten cheaper, uh, or you know, have increased scale allowed us to make data cheaper, we have been able to apply the technologies to more and more samples to enable um, basic research, clinical research, um, across a variety of disease types. Um, and so, you know, some remarkable things you'll see here, of course, is the sort of continued growth of exome sequencing, and I'll talk a lot more about that in a few moments. Um, that has been uh, pretty steady over the last five years. It was one of the first applications um, in human genomics um, that, that was operated at scale on next-gen platforms. Uh, and the other notable thing, I guess, here is that you might see um, the uptick or increasing uh, rate at which hu whole human genomes are now being produced. Uh, I'll not speak too much in depth on whole human genomes today, but just to note that with the latest uh, generation of machines, there has been a, a, a large increase in the number of whole human genomes that are being produced here and across the world. Um, 
Uh, and also transcriptomes, RNA-seq is a, an immensely powerful application. Again, I'm not going to speak uh, in tremendous depth on that today, but it is worth noting that uh, you know, large numbers of RNA-seq um, samples and, and uh, experiments are also ongoing. Okay, so, so what will I cover? You know, we, we could talk about NGS for literally hours here, but um, to be a little bit specific and targeted, I'm going to focus on two main areas. Um, one that I think doesn't get a lot of attention, but that um, I, I think is very important are the pre-analytical considerations. And I'll explain a little bit what that means in a second. And the second is um, some of the sample prep considerations. So, you know, I'm not going to walk through a protocol because there are many and varied protocols, but I want to give you some of the, you know, certainly the major steps involved and things to think about if you're just getting into this field or you're um, evaluating different methods of doing things, I want to give you some you know, tips and tricks, some of our experience and things that we pay attention to as we think about producing um, mainly exomes at large scale at the Broad Institute. Um, what I will not talk about today, just to, to set expectations here, I'm not going to get into the specifics on any given of uh, sequencing platforms, that is the actual detection technologies. Um, there are many um, sources of uh, information available about those, and that would be an entire talk on its own, comparing and contrasting the actual technical outputs of the various um, sequencing platforms and how they work. Um, I'm really going to focus on the upfront prep. And also, I'm not here um, to speak specifically about any particular kits or vendors or products. Um, I'm speaking from uh, personal experience here and not endorsing any um, particular product. Okay. So to dive into general concepts, so high-level concepts when you're thinking about um, next-generation sequencing sample prep, um, the very first question, of course, is um, what is the intended use of your, of your data? What do you actually want to do? What is the experiment that you want to do? Um, what is the system that you want to examine? Is it human? Is it microbial? Is it metagenomic? What are the scientific questions? Of course, these are the you know, fundamental things that any um, scientist or group who are approaching a study should be um, primarily in, um, um, thinking about, and then really understanding, once you understand what the science is that you want to do, what are the available applications and technologies, and what is the most appropriate sample preparation, um, and what are the possible limitations to doing the science you want to do with the samples that you have. These are sort of important things to just ask yourself up front. Um, as I said before, uh, NGS is now used in a really, you know, staggeringly, staggeringly broad range of applications um, from uh, basic science, environmental science, agricultural science, food science, um, you know, through preclinical, microbial, infectious disease, epigenomics, and really all across the spectrum of biomedical research. And it would be, you know, uh, take us hours to cover all of these. So if you have a particular application space that requires a very specialized or custom um, sample preparation, I'm not probably going to touch on it today, but, but, but there are people who have probably um, done it before. There are a lot of resources available. So uh, the other part to think about is what is the endpoint? Uh, sorry, what are the, you know, based on your experiment and the science that you want to do, what is the most appropriate sequencing technology? Like I said, I'm not getting into a, 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 an in-depth study of these today, but it is worth noting things like if you want to do um, you know, microbial assemblies or assemblies of difficult genome context or you need to look at long repeats, then you may want to look at sequencing platform read length as a specific output of a given technology. And that you know, if you require very long reads, then that may point you towards one technology over another. Um, however, if you are more, if you are, you don't need long reads, but you're really, your limitation is in cost, then that may, that may push you in a different direction. Or if you need a lot of data about a particular sample, that it may also point you to a slightly different platform. So, so really, you know, making sure that the, the technology that's available to you or that you're evaluating or considering is appropriate to the experiment that you want to do. Um, regardless of what the platform is, then there are, you know, important things to think about. And so um, what I'll touch on next is what is the sample type um, that you're actually going to be working on? How will you extract the genomic material? 
what are the sample preparation steps that you uh, will need to go through based on the um, type of library, the type of uh, uh, sequencing that you want to do, um, what is the, the um, technology platform that you're going to use. And one thing that I think, you know, again, sometimes can be slightly um, underemphasized um, when we're just starting out is, what is the analysis that will be performed? If you're sending your sequencing out to a, a provider or a core, um, you know, what is it that they're going to give you back? Are they going to give you back raw reads in a FASTQ format? Are they going to give you back an aligned BAM? Are they going to do variant calling? And what is it that you want to do with the data? Uh, um, again, this is another area where you may want to do a survey of analytical pipelines and tools that are available. Um, and, and also, um, one thing to think about is if you're sending out for uh, large numbers of exomes or whole human genomes, you really do have to pay attention to the amount of data that you will get back. Um, the amounts of data in bytes, um, you know, regardless of number of, uh, in addition to the number of bases, is now very large indeed. And you may have to um, consider how you're going to store that data, how you're going to pay for the storage of that data, who is going to store the data if your provider is not going to store it. Uh, Etc. And so these are these are important things to think about as you approach an NGS experiment. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Okay, so getting into the details a little bit here, um, talking about pre-analytical considerations. So um, when I when I say pre-analytical, what I mean is. Um, what are the samples? What are the specimens that you you have to work with, um, uh, and are they you know what are the implications of that for the type of science that you want to do? Um, it, you know our experience, and I think you know broadly accepted uh, knowledge is that uh, not all samples are the same when it comes to creating NGS data. Um, you really cannot expect to get the exact same type of data from a formalin-fixed paraffin-embedded, or FFPE, uh, you know, biopsy, as you would from fresh blood. There are just um, uh, differences in the way that the samples have been fixed and handled that are going to give you know, different um, sequencing results to some extent at the other end. So you must, must think carefully um, if you're comparing samples of different types at the beginning. Um, uh, and, and try to understand what the implications will be for your experiment based on this uh, on your sample type. If you are looking at, um, and so you know, NGS is of course um, possible from all of these sam uh, these sample types and the ones I have listed here are ones that we have um, uh, extensive experience with at the Broad. There are others here that I have not listed even that um, that we work on and that others work on. Um, you know, things like blood biopsies, circulating um, cell free DNA. Um, these are more, you know, increasing in in, um, in popularity, and so there are implications for all of these sample types. What are the types of issues we're talking about here? Well, you may be concerned with sample degradation. Um, sample degradation is one concern, particularly if you're thinking about FFPE type samples. Um, you know, FFPE um, was essentially the major paradigm by which pathologists um, preserve samples for histological examination, and, and because of that, um, ex because of its extensive usage for that purpose, there are large numbers of samples in biobanks, in pathology departments, in hospital collections that are preserved in this way. Um, there are now methods for creating NGS data from these samples, and so that makes them a very attractive um, sample type because we have such large collections and historical collections, um, but you do have to be worried about um, um, problems with FFP samples. With uh, FFP specifically, you can have sample degradation. It's not always related to the age of the sample. That's important to note. Um, you can have quite old samples, tens of years old, that uh, perform quite well. And you can have relatively new samples from FFPE that do really badly. And, and there are many um, possible reasons for this. There can be the methods that were used to embed the tissue you know, hydrolysis of formalin and lots of other reasons. But it's, it's worth noting that um, age is not necessarily the, the major predictor of performance of an FFP sample. Also within the sequence, you can have cross-linking, you can have deamination effects. So you may have, depending on what you're looking at in the data, if you're looking for 
very low allele fraction events, you may want to be careful of DNA artifacts. And there are some literature around the types of artifacts that you could see in an FFP sample. With other sample types, you may have to worry about yields. A lot of the sample preparation technologies do require minimum amounts of material to get good quality data. So if you have a very limiting amount of sample, this may also be a challenge. Just as an example here, we can look at one metric for FFPE-derived samples across a range of cancer sample sequence at the Broad. And we're, what we're looking at here is the percent of selected bases. This is um, when we do some kind of hybrid capture exome-type sequencing, the number of bases that we've actually positively selected for. And so over 80% is considered good. And here you can see that, for the most part, a lot of these FFP samples look really good. However, if you look at a different metric, um, such as percent duplication, this is how many times you're sequencing the same molecule within a sample, you can see that there actually can be quite a broad range within FFPE samples. And this can be related to degradation within the sample, low yields, etc. So you do have to be very careful of um, which metrics you look at when you're assessing the quality of your data as well. Okay, um, another pre-analytical step that you may want to consider is sample qualification. That is, once you have extracted material, from your, your, your sample of interest, how do you qualify that sample? Um, you know, oftentimes people just do an extraction and do some UV measurement for quantification and quality, but it, it is worth noting that um, fluorescence-based methods for sample quantification are much more accurate. If you do UV uh, alone, you will probably overestimate the amount of material in your sample because it is not the UV is not necessarily very accurately distinguishing between uh, intact material, degraded material, uh, mixes of DNA and RNA, etc. So fluorescence-based methods are generally preferable. Um, if, you're, if you're submitting a sample to somebody else to do sequencing, they will likely ask you to do that for quantification. There are now, if you have concerns about the quality of your, of your material, there are now several um, assays available in the literature and also now as, as kits that you can use to actually measure the integrity of your assay. Some of these use differing size PCR amplicons as a measure. Um, some of them use smear analyses. And we have seen um, you know, a decent correlation between some of these integrity assays and performance. Um, so we assign for particularly troubling samples, we do do a, uh, integrity QC for DNA, assign a quality score, and we can predict to some extent um, how much sequencing will be required to meet coverage for that sample or what the likelihood is of that sample failing or passing. RNA, um, also, you know, if you're doing an RNA experiment, of course, you have to be particularly careful about um, handling of the sample and preservation of the sample because RNA can be quickly degraded. And so smear analyses, uh, looking at things like RIN and RQS scores, um, uh, can be very helpful at understanding the proportion of your RNA molecules that are intact or at least uh, of sufficient length to, to go into uh, downstream process. Okay, so some of the sample preparation um, applications. Uh, like I said, you know, there are literally hundreds of different applications and different types of sample preparation. Um, to give you a general concept, I'm just going to focus uh, on two. I'm going to very briefly talk about whole genome just as a, as a baseline and then talk about whole exome. So in whole genome sequencing, uh, this is one of the more simple processes that we can do in the lab for standard sequencing technologies. You start with genomic DNA. You fragment that DNA to some, you, you know, to some extent. Um, I'll talk about that more in a second. You want to repair those ends. You're going to ligate an adapter. And then you can or you, you know, have an optional uh, step of PCR. Um, if you have enough material for whole genome sequencing, you do not necessarily have to do PCR if you have full-length adapters. Um, and there are good reasons why you may not want to do a PCR. Anytime you do PCR, you will introduce some amount of GC bias into your um, sample. And so what you can see here on the graph is on the lower uh, histogram, this is the GC uh, distribution within the reference human genome, um, where you can see how, you know, bins of GC. And on the upper level, you can see two plots, the green one being the um, samples that have had PCR applied to the libraries. And what you can see is essentially, um, you know, this is normalized coverage. And so a flat line along the dotted line there at one would indicate that you're, you're adequately representing the underlying GC within the reference genome. Um, and what you can see here is that when you don't do any PCR, you get quite close to that. You know, you start to drop off at the extreme GC levels, uh, but you really are doing a pretty good job. Once you add PCR, then you do start to skew 
uh, your representation of GC. And so this means just undercoverage of some parts of the genome. GC-rich regions may be undercovered. You may need to do more sequencing to cover these regions, or you may just never get them. So this is a, a, an important consideration. Okay, exome sequencing then. Um, you know, the exome, uh, if you're not aware, is essentially the expressed part of the genome, is generally all of the coding regions um, of the genes, which is around just under about 2% of the actual entire genome. And so there is, you know, the reason when sequencing was more expensive, it was um, uh, uh, very beneficial to be able to sequence just that part of the genome that had been associated with biomedical disease. The majority of known associations with biomedical disease today are within the coding region. Of course, there is a lot of work on um, um, uh, genetic implications of, of regions outside of that region, but for a lot of applications, just looking at the coding region was um, sufficient. And, you know, to be able to sequence just that 2% of a sample rather than the other 98% of the uh, genomic material was a lot more cost-effective. And so several groups, including ours at the Broad Institute, led by Andy Nurkey, developed methods to be able to select out the exome from genomic DNA. So the sample prep paradigm is, is uh, generally the same as whole genome to begin with. You do DNA fragmentation, you repair the ends, you ligate on adapters. Uh, generally, you will do a PCR because you're generally starting with less material in an exome, and you want to have enough material for the next step. Um, then there is basically a capture step. Um, so oftentimes you'll hear uh, some folks return, refer to exome sequencing as hybrid selection, hybrid capture. This basically uh, relates to the fact that you are creating probes. You may be an RNA probe or a DNA probe, an oligo long oligonucleotide, depending on the, the kit or technology you're using. Uh, in solution is one, is one way of doing it. You will then um, add biotinylated capture probes and your genomic DNA library and you will essentially allow that to hybridize for varying amounts of time. Usually it's overnight or around 16 hours. Uh, and that will uh, allow then your library molecules to hybridize with the capture probes. Uh, using streptavidin beads, you can pull out those biotinylated capture probes and their um, attached library molecules and wash away essentially the rest of the genomic material that you don't want to sequence. Uh, you generally, generally do a post-capture PCR, purify, qPCR, and sequence. So when you're considering an exome um, capture method, you can, there are different types on the market. It can be DNA probes, it can be RNA probes, it can be long probes, shorter probes. Um, you want to think about how you're going to fragment your DNA. I'll talk about that in a second. And then you want to think about, is it an exome, a whole exome, or is it a medical exome? There are now differing products on the market, and it's worth reading the details to understand exactly what it is that you want, you're capturing. Is it all genes or is it only those subset of genes which may be 4,000 or 6,000 that are associated with uh, uh, clinical indications? Just a de uh, deeper dive on DNA fragmentation for a second. Um, most of the genomic technology, sample prep technologies require fragmentation as a first step. Not all, but most. Um, fragmentation is needed in, the, in most of these applications because long genomic DNA is not appropriate for capture. And it's not appropriate for amplification on a substrate or amplification on, a, on a, a sequencing flow cell or some other detection method. And so generally, you want to have a controlled size range of material. Um, several options exist for this uh, fragmentation. Historically, uh, people have used things like acoustic energy, focused acoustic energy to uh, fragment DNA. You can also, for some applications, if you want larger uh, molecules, you can use um, shear forces by passing um, genomic material through a narrow opening. Um, there are also now a newer class coming out more recently of, of enzymes and enzyme cocktails. Um, there are some that are specific enzymes that insert themselves um, with sequences into the uh, genomic material, and then there are, um, then there are enzyme cocktails which just uh, shear the material. And when you're considering these, you want to look at your particular application for suitability. If you want to do things at scale in plates, you know, in 96-well microtiter plates, then you want to look at the ability to do something in a plate, the ability, uh, automation compatibility, et cetera. Um, you also want to look at uh, how well does it shear and how tightly does it shear. Depending on the application, you may want that to be a very controlled shear, um, or you may be able to accept a wider um, distribution of molecule sizes. 
Um, you, you know, probably you don't want to have bias in how the sharing is um, happening. Um, and you also want to make sure that you're not introducing any artifacts. Uh, we published a paper from the Broad that showed that with very high energy acoustic shearing, we are actually causing some uh, deamination events that or oxidation events um, that we're introducing very low allele fraction artifacts in our DNA. And so that's something to be considered. Um, you know, what have we used exome sequencing for? Um, like I said, um, it, it's really been, you know, since its um, development, exome sequencing has been used at the Broad and across many other centers uh, across all ranges, all ranges of, of biomedical research. There are common disease research examples from the Broad, um, including understanding the uh, genomic basis and risk factors for things like uh, type 2 diabetes, early onset myocardial infarction and psychiatric disease. Uh, these have um, you know, each required us to be able to sequence tens of thousands of samples to be able to see these um, you know, uh, subtle genomic effects. And that is really a reason why being able to process samples at scale, cost efficiently, and use um, you know, uh, cheap um, sequencing technologies is really beneficial because for a lot of these uh, subtle genomic effects, you really need to be able to sequence many, many, many thousands of cases and controls and samples to be able to find these effects. And so being able to operate at scale is, is critically important. And then as a um, broad application in the cancer field, uh, in cancer gene discovery, as part of projects such as the Cancer Genome Atlas, um, more and more we are seeing um, exome and sub-exome sequencing targeted panels in, um, in cancer diagnostics and clinical sequencing. Um, a lot of these um, tests are now being applied in, in CLIA diagnostic labs. Um, there is also um, cancer screening to look for genetic risk factors for development of cancer that have become more popular. Um, and, and finally, it more, much more recently, we're starting to see even some of the precision medicine type work where um, Therapies are being developed uh, based on a patient's own specific tumor uh, genetic architecture and the specific variants and antigens that are presented on that person's tumor. And this is a very exciting area that, again, is leveraging things like whole exome sequencing to uh, characterize a patient's disease. So this is really just a very you know, quick um, um, overview um, there are many more applications. Uh, one thing, you know, I want to give some general concepts here, um, some limitations of whole exome sequencing. Um, uh, you know, depth of coverage. If you are doing cancer sequencing and you actually want to uh, find a, a rare um, uh, cancer mutation in a sample that most biopsy samples that we get are not all pure tumor, of course. Um, a lot of the samples are an admixture of um, um, stromal contamination, that is normal non-tumor cells, with tumor cells. And so when you're looking for um, driver mutations in cancer, you, may, you have to be able to find events that are um, at lower allele fractions than the standard germline you know, 0, 50, or 100% events. Uh, and to do that at high sensitivity, you often have to sequence um, to higher coverage. Um, if you have to do that for whole exomes, that can be expensive. Um, so even though you're only doing 2% of the genome, if you have to then sequence that to a 1,000x depth um, on average, that can, that can get pricey. And this is where um, a lot of uh, folks have been using more targeted panels, and that is oftentimes using the same technology as the exome, but actually not targeting all the genes, but just choosing panels of genes that are specific to a given disease context. Uh, breadth of coverage can be an issue. So the exome only represents, um, the sequence that you get from the whole exome sequencing only represents those targeted regions that were in your probe set, in your capture probe set. Uh, and even then, it may not represent all of those if there are biases and you're not actually uh, efficiently capturing or sequencing some of those regions. Um, and as new genes are discovered and new areas of importance are discovered in intronic regions, um, you know, that content may not be in your whole exome sequence. And so that's, um, you know, keeping up with the content can be a challenge. Uh, and it's not cheap or easy necessarily to change that content for a given exome product. Uh, and here again, people have gone two ways. You can do smaller numbers of gene panels to be very fast and flexible, or do a whole genome sequence instead. And finally, like we talked about, bias in the coverage. 
because we're doing PCR and the whole exome process, you will get underrepresentation of some regions. You will also, if you're general, if you're seeing with short read technologies, um, have limitations in uh, mappability and alignability of reads and genes that have high homology, um, and this is just a limitation. Um, and so, in this case, you know, PCR-free whole genome is an option to overcome some of the GC bias, as we showed. Uh, and other technologies can exist, and sometimes these can be complementary to short read technologies. Um, sometimes there are uh, things you can do before you do your short read technology to help you with mapping uh, and long range uh, events. Okay, so so I know this was pretty quick, but it was really just a, um, like I said, a whistle stop tour of um, some thoughts and considerations around um, um, NGS prep, specifically on whole exome sequencing. Um, I hope it gave you something to think about um, when you start to approach a sequencing technology um, project. And with that, I will uh, uh, hand it over. Thank you very much. Uh, look forward to your questions at the end. Hi, everyone. This is Vishwa Deepak from Kaijin. I am working as Global Marketing Manager in Kaijin. And thank you, Niall, uh, for in-depth introduction to whole genome sequencing, as well as the considerations for sample preparation and examples of how this application can be used in clinical research. Before I go for before we go for question and answer session with Niall, I would like to briefly compare and contrast whole exome sequencing with two other common NGS applications that are whole genome sequencing and targeted DNA sequencing. So here as you can see, uh, so in the first slide I would just like to just show these three different types of sequencing. There has been a lot of interest generated in the communi community and as well as the price of whole genome sequencing is going very down as well as the time has been just cut to short to just 20, 26 hours. And these are the, some examples of the publications where they are focusing on targeted panels and here on whole exome sequencing. Yeah, so here it's a very high level uh, comparison. So what I'm trying here, when we look at the different levels of sequencing that when one can do, and we see three major types of sequencing whole genome sequencing, whole exome sequencing, and targeted DNA sequencing. And each of these three approaches has, has its own advantages and disadvantages. I will compare the different sequen sequencing levels and approaches and show some of the benefits for targeted DNA sequencing. So when we look at the different parameters here on the left-hand side, information level, cost per sample, detection of low-frequency mutations, DNA input, and number of samples multiplexed, so on the we see that on the information level, whole genome sequencing will give all the information on every single base pair that exists in the genome, what you study. And when we when someone is doing whole exome sequencing, you are basically looking only at the exons, the coding sequences of the genes. But when you are doing targeted DNA sequencing, this is very specific and very flexible approach where you are defining the target and you are bringing down the number of base pairs what you actually want to study. So whole genome sequencing and whole exome sequencing could be very effective for research purposes where you want to study everything in genome. But for clinical purposes, defining your target makes it helpful because it makes you more confident with the data what is generated at the end. And also, um, also the very important consideration here is the cost, the cost involved. So for targeted DNA sequencing, it is quite cheap compared to the two other approaches. And targeted DNA sequencing is a method of choice for clinical utility, and this is enabled by target enrichment. And also, this is very important for detection, detection of low mutations. And at Kaigen, at different uh, stages, from sample to insight, so we have at different stages, we have different solutions. So firstly, I will talk quickly about the challenges, what we have here. So at the sample, as Niall mentioned, uh, it's, uh, there are a lot of challenges involved during the purification or preparation of genomic DNA from FAP samples. 
so this is this remains a very important challenge especially with ffp challenge uh, samples to isolate the high quality dna and also along the workflow target enrichment and also with lab reconstruction also a lot of challenges are involved and the most important challenge is at the last for data, data analysis and interpretation because there is a lot amount of data which is generated and it becomes very difficult to analyze the data in the real biological context. So at Kyogen we have solutions from starting to end to overcome challenges in your DNA NGS workflow. And these are the workflow solutions what we have at different stages. Here is the GND DNA FAP kit and also kits for single cell and for target enrichment. We have GND DNA seq target enrichment panels. I will quickly talk about that in the later slides. And for library construction, as Niall mentioned uh, about different methods of sharing the genomic DNA. So we have recently introduced a Kaiseq FX DNA library kit. And for data analysis and interpretation, we have some great products here. CLC Bio and Ingenuity for interpretation of the huge amount of data what is generated after the NGS run. And here for targeted DNA sequencing, we have the gene panels, which are disease specific amplicon panels and custom amplicon panel design. And this is a very simple protocol. And within three hours, you can go from genomic DNA to the enrichment of your target. And then further three to four hours are required for preparing the NGS library. And if we talk about uh, this, uh, the Kaiseq FX, this is a recently launched product where you can do these three kinds of applications, whole genome sequencing, metagenomics, and hybrid capture applications. And here in 2.5 hours, you can be sure that your library is done. And then you can do the sequencing. And what are the gene panels? Gene panels uh, are, all these panels are wet bench verified and they require very less amount of DNA. So only 40 nanograms of DNA is needed per panel. And of course, when the except, uh, actionable mutation panels are involved, then there you need only 20 nanograms of DNA. And this is the largest collection of pre-designed panels, which are suitable for a wide range of applications for different kinds of cancers, right from breast cancer, liver cancer, lung cancer, etc. These panels are validated and also custom panels are also available depending on the request. And these gene panels are platform uh, agnostic, so they can be used also on Illumina as well as on Iron Torrent. And quickly I would highlight some features. You need very less amount of DNA here and with quicker turnout time, short amplicons are generated, and this is platform independent, and so on. And the second product, what I talk about here is Kaiseq FX for mechanical for sharing of genomic DNA. So this is this 2.5 hour workflow from DNA to libraries, single step enzymatic fragmentation with end repair and adapter addition, and also you can achieve higher library complexity for whole genome and whole exome sequencing. And also there are some other benefits. I, would, I won't go much into details here. And these are the customer stories what customers have. These customers have already used our panels and they, they have been really satisfied and they, can, they have generated a good amount of data. And then this is what our customers say. So I think you should also try if you feel like about these panels. Yeah, and with that, I think I would like to thank you for watching. And then please, for more webinars, you can visit kaijin.com. Well, thank you, Niall and Deepak. That was an excellent presentation. And now we have a few questions from the audience. If anyone else has a question, please feel free to post it in the questions box that appears on the right of your screen. So now our first question is from uh, Loria, and they ask, would you recommend next generation sequencing to analyze a genetic library of about 900 base pairs? And are there any biases in the coverage to be considered? Um, right, so I think uh, certainly would need to understand a little bit more um, so what they mean by a genetic library of 900 base pairs. But if there's a, a 
um, uh, compatible sample type. That is, the, the 900 base pair library is in a format. If it's uh, oligos, it's plasmids, it's something that's compatible with a sequencing technology, then certainly uh, or can be made to be compatible uh, by PCR or other um, you know, molecular biology manipulations, then certainly um, you know, this is a, a fine thing to do to characterize the library. The 900 bases um, as a fragment, if you want to do it as an entire fragment, is going to be challenging if you need to um, capture the entire fragment with one read, um, then a short read technology is going to be challenging, right? So, um, you, you know, you can either uh, aim to, um, uh, you know, take the 900 bases and for each given um, sample or fragment that you want to analyze, if you can separate it out uh, by PCR or other ways to, and then reassemble it at the end, that's one way you could leverage short read technologies. If it's a, you know, like you say, a library of 900 base pair fragments, then, uh, and you need to know each, you know, each span of 900, that's going to be more difficult from uh, a short read sequencer. So there are sequencers out there, though, that could do that. So you could use um, some of the longer read technologies that are out there, such as PacBio, um, Oxford Nanopore. Um, there are, you know, it's possible that you could just about get two long reads to um, cover most. If you did 400 or 450 base pair ends that are possible on some technologies, um, you may be able to get most of your 900 base pair fragment covered in, in uh, with a short read technology. Um, but it really depends on the on the analysis that you need to to do with it, uh, and the biases again will be the same as um, uh, we've talked about. If you need to amplify the library to prepare it for sequencing, then you have to worry about some PCR bias, uh, and that will really depend on the genomic context of the fragments. Um, their particular GC um, con GC being the major predictor, I think, of bias in this case. Um, uh, you know, if they are very high GC or very low GC in general, then you may, or or some of them within the library are, then you will expect to see less representation of those molecules in your final library mix and in your sequencing uh, reads, unless you, you can use one of the technologies, again, that you may not need to do PCR. And so there are some um, preps that you can do on, for instance, the PacBio, I believe, where you don't have to do um, amplification and that may be a way to avoid the bias and get across the long the long molecule. So I would definitely consider if I understand the the context correctly I would consider looking at availability of some of the longer read technologies for this application. Great. Thank you very much. So I have a question from um I'm sorry going to mispronounce your name Ijun and they ask when it comes to microbial next generation sequencing what are the most important aspects to consider when approaching whole genome sequencing? Right. Uh, again, it's uh, dependent on uh, on what you want to do. If your if your um, goal is to assemble, to create assemblies, whole genome microbial assemblies from these um, reads, then um, it, it's generally the same considerations as you would have if you were doing a whole human genome to some extent. Right. You you just have to worry about um, the biases that you may introduce in sample prep. So that is, if you have um, a limiting amount of material, you know, if you can grow up a lot of material in culture, maybe you don't have to do a PCR. Um, but if you if you have limiting amounts of material and you do have to do PCR in the prep, then you will have to worry about GC bias. And depending on the microbe you're studying, you know, microbes can have very extreme GC bias, GC profiles. And so there, um, there is a lot of literature looking at um, representation of very high and very low GC organisms in uh, by next-gen sequencing. Um, and then the other application, the other uh, consideration is, again, on the assembly front, if you are going to assemble, uh, you know, how are you planning to assemble? Um, what program are you going to use? And does that program allow you to bring together two different data types? And so um, uh, oftentimes for challenging microbial genomes, people will try to integrate two data types. And that that has been, you know, uh, both uh, things like adding packed bio data with Illumina data for assembly, or I've seen people add Oxford Nanopore data with Illumina uh, data for assembly. And, and really, again, the paradigm here being that you're trying to add a long read technology to a short read technology. And so the short read will get you 
uh, high depth of coverage of highly accurate reads, and the longer read technologies will give you um, spanning information to allow you to piece together contigs in the assembly uh, and to resolve sort of mapping issues. And so that's really the, um, the implications for assembly of microbial genomes. And so kind of going, I guess, into there, what is the best way to limit um, contamination during library prep or during preparation of a library? Right. Yeah. So this is, this is certainly something to consider. Um, and you want to attack it at every step of the process. And so starting from the pre-analytical, so how pure is the sample that you're starting from? If you're looking to, um, you know, extract tumor cells from a biopsy, then you're, the contamination you're generally concerned with is the non-tumor cells. If you're looking at microbial isolates from soil, then you may have many other um, contaminants. And so it really depends on the, on the sample type. And so you want to pick the most appropriate extraction method to give you the purest possible sample. And then in the, in the actual molecular biology processing, of course, um, you know, our general process here separates uh, pre and post PCR steps. So general, you know, just good lab practice for molecular biology, keeping pre-amplification and post-amplification steps separate in the lab. If you're ever doing RNA work, of course, you'd want to have dedicated um, pipettes and, and instruments where possible for RNA work and bench space. Uh, and then you want to have, if you're doing things in, um, in microtiter plates, um, uh, you, you may want to look at, depending on the context, again, you may want to look at um, seals on the plates where you can use pierceable seals instead of ripping off plate seals, which can cause droplets to form. Um, you always want to look at um, any possibility of aspiration into uh, pet tip barrels as a possible source of cross-contamination. Literally, you know, cross-contamination can certainly come in at many points in the lab processing. And so really maintaining good um, molecular biology lab um, standards and practices will help. And then you may also want to look at algorithmically when you're looking at your data. There are um, open source tools available to look at your sequence data and understand if there's contamination in there. And this can be, if you're looking at, for instance, um, human whole genome sequencing from samples that were collected from saliva, you may actually have microbial reads in there because of um, uh, bacteria in the mouth in the saliva. And so there are, you know, algorithms that you can write to filter out the microbial reads there. Similarly, you can look at um, uh, variant frequency, genotype, free, uh, you know, um, the number of variants in a given sample compared to expected population frequencies. Um, and there's a, a program called Verify BAM ID, which is an open source program that you can use that will give you some estimation or score of how likely it is that your data came from a single human sample versus an admixture of human samples, which may be a way to detect um, mixing of human samples in the lab. Okay. Well, kind of going along the same vein is with contamination because I know that RNA for me was RNA contamination for me in the laboratory is very touchy. Um, Walter asks about whole genome sequencing of isolated RNA viruses and if you need to perform um, reverse transcriptase to produce C DNA or if you just send the RNA straight out for um, whole genome sequencing. Yeah, so uh, I have spent quite a long time thinking about this. And the first couple of years that I was at the Broad Institute, we were developing methods for whole genome sequencing of uh, dengue virus, hepatitis C virus, and HIV, which are all single-stranded RNA viruses. And we were trying to do whole genome sequencing from those. You, uh, there are, you know, a lot, there have been um, technologies along the way that have tried to do direct RNA sequencing. Um, I don't think any of them are there yet, and so. For the most part, you will definitely almost always have to do an RT step. Um, and then the question is, do you do a single long RT? Can you optimize to get essentially a single um, full-length cDNA from your RNA virus of interest? Um, or do you need to um, um, worry about it being shorter and do some random primed RT? Um, and then, you know, and then um, generally for RNA viruses, you will have to amplify because you, you usually don't have a lot of material to begin with. And so there are now methods, you know, people have done things like tiled PCR, long-range PCR um, is common in HIV. Um, there are other kits now that have uh, leveraged um, um, uh, molecular biology techniques in the RT to give you sort of randomly primed and whole genome amplified RNA virus libraries, um, but they will all be in, in converted to cDNA um, for processing um, 
before sequencing because they all essentially have to get back to a sequenceable library, which is a DNA library with adapters. Okay, and you mentioned um, some limitations and some considerations at the end of your presentation for um, next generation sequencing. Um, so Katie asks, how do these considerations apply to pyro sequencing? Uh, right. I mean, uh, so, it, it, again, depending on what it is that you're sequencing, um, um, it, you know, I, I can't speak in depth too much about the modern pyro sequencing platforms, but I can tell you from experience of the uh, pyro sequencing platforms that I worked on, which were the sort of the early days 454 technologies, um, depending on the way the, the uh, bases are incorporated, you may need to... Um, worry about homopolymers uh, that had been, you know, traditionally um, um, a, a limitation of some of the early pyro sequencing technologies where you have um, the integration of uh, multiple bases at once. So if you have a string of T's and you flow across, uh, you know, um, A bases, you get all of those A bases incorporated at once instead of the one-by-one one sequencing by synthesis approach. Um, with with terminator bases uh, and then you know which is great um but the depending on the length of the homopolymer is oftentimes the software has had um problems integrating over large stretches of homopolymers and so you have some indel errors prop um, specifically for biased around um, homopolymer stretches so that's one of the major limitations um that historically we've had to parse Okay, and um, you mentioned earlier um, talking about automation with um, sequencing. So Kay asks, or Key, I'm, I'm sorry, um, if you think whether um, NGS sample preparation automation is important, or if automation is important in um, NGS sample preparation. Right, and, and uh, so certainly we do. Um, you know, uh, I again, if you if you really want to operate at scale. I think it really depends on the scale. If you're only going to do one sample at a time uh, or one or two samples at a time, then, you know, the investment in automation may not make sense. If you are going to routinely uh, make multiple libraries, you know, 8s, 12s, 48s, 96s, then really it's indispensable. And not just from a labor-saving perspective, but really from a, a variability perspective. We see that and many, oftentimes, many of our processes will start at the lab bench with, um, you know, technicians, skilled technicians doing it by hand in strip tubes, as most molecular biology processes start. But once we want to apply those at scale in a production environment and for clinical applications, we really want to identify and eliminate every possible source of, of variation in that process and sources for potential um, sample mix-up or sample contamination. And uh, really moving things to automated fluid handlers has been historically for us the you know the most um, efficient and proven way to do that. Um, even in even when you don't have sample contamination or cro uh, or cross contamination with the manual process, um, there is still just the human factor that introduces variability. And if you are making you know barcoded or indexed libraries and pooling those together, what you'll see is that if you do it by hand, you're just it's going to be very, very difficult to get a very even representation of the samples in your pool, and therefore you'll end up over-sequencing some samples and under-sequencing other samples. Whereas using fluid handling automation, you can get quite accurate um, with all of those fluid handling steps, which reduces the variability at every step and means you get a much more even, um, much more dependable um, um, data set out the other end. Okay. And so um, Fabio asks for, this is in reference to plant home whole genome sequencing, but um, I think this could apply to other um, organisms as well. Um, and he's asking about, do you have any hands-on experience with the minimal genome coverage required to map um, SNPs or um, single-nucleotide right. polymorphisms? Yep. So, uh, yes, yeah, so coverage is certainly something that we, we look at a lot for whole genome. Um, I should I should definitely say up front I have no experience with plant whole genome sequencing, um, but in general in general when we talk about whole genome sequencing coverage, um, it, you know coverage is very important when we think about um, sensitivity. And so there's a couple of ways to think about coverage. Um, 
you know, the, the most basic, simplest way to think about coverage is the number of, you know, reads or bases that you get divided by the size of your genome. And that's where you calculate sort of your coverage. But actually, it's a lot more, um, it's a lot more complicated than that, because you do have to consider uh, the mapping of reads on the genome, the any unevenness of coverage based on, on bias in how you've done the sample prep, if you've included PCR or not. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you, you can sometimes get jackpotting of certain areas of the genome where they have very, very high coverage and um, uh, underrepresentation of other areas. And so just looking at one number of the mean coverage across the genome can, can sometimes be misleading. And so what we often do here is look at uh, the percentage of a given genome that is covered at a given, co at a given X coverage. So they say for whole human genomes, we aim for over 90% of the genome to be covered to a minimum depth of 20X. That means that at least 90% of the bases have 20 reads piled up on top of them. And that's, uh, and so what we find from um, SNP analysis is that we are, you know, uh, once you get to 20x unique coverage at a given site, you are, um, you know, very highly powered to call SNPs. Um, you know, so, so I would say 20x is sort of the, you know, a, a high quality minimum coverage for SNP calling. Certainly, you can do SNP calling with lower coverage. Um, but, but when you, when you say you have most of your bases at 20x, that means that you're highly powered to call SNPs, even at those bases that are slightly under 20x. Um, uh, and for in, if you're looking at indels, you may need to do, you know, you may need to go like a little bit higher towards 30x. Okay. And then Afshin asks about sample size for, um, NGS, or can they start with any sample size? Uh, sample size, you mean by the number of samples for a given study? I think um, it, it's very dependent on the study, very dependent on what the analysis is that you want to do. Um, if you are looking for, uh, you know, rare variants to find the, uh, uh, you know, uh, to compare two populations, cases, controls, or two different um, treatment populations, you, you really do need to have good sample sizes. Uh, you know, sort of a scary number, but if you're looking at common disease and you're looking at, you know, some of the, the, the examples that I gave of uh, looking for, you know, um, causative risk factors for things like um, diabetes and psychiatric disease, uh, the statisticians at the Broad and other places have done analyses that show that you really should be looking at something like 25,000 cases and 25,000 controls in the population to be really powered to find some of these events. Certainly, if you're doing, you know, other more targeted experiments, you don't need to go that crazy. But I think power is a, uh, an important calculation to do at the beginning of any experiment. And it's always going to be very much contextual and dependent on the types of experiments that you're trying to do. And the other thing I would say, one, one final thing I would say just on size is that if you're doing human sequencing, um, you, you, you should probably try to leverage um, data sets that are available. And so there are, you know, a large sets of exome, whole exome sequences from humans um, available as part of the EXAC consortium at the Broad that's freely available to look at variant frequency um, across over 60,000 um, human exomes. And that may be a way to help you um, filter your data sets across large data sets without having to generate them. Okay, and I think we've got two questions left. Um, one is very specific and one's more general. So the more specific one is from Jenny, and she says that she's following Peterson's DDRAD protocol to produce a library of 400 to 700 base pair fragments. Uh, she ran the library product out before sending to sequencing, and there was a satellite band below the 400 base pair marker, around 200 base pairs or so. So she's wondering if you have any ideas of what could be causing this, and would it affect the library results? Or if it would, you know, it might not be amplified on the Illumina um, MySeq. That is very specific. Um, I have, I have, I have, I have no clue. Um, all I could say, I have no clue what it is, I would say. I think um, the only thing I would say about, you know, if you're looking at the library size and she's seeing a lower band, um, then it might be worth looking at, um, well, you could, uh, you know, you could try to size select it, or you could look at qPCR and try to figure out if the lower band is actually got adapters on it. Um, if it's been amplified by qPCR and then you're looking and seeing this band, then it probably does have adapters on it, in which case it will get sequenced. And if it's a non-specific band or a non-specific 
sample or some other part of the sample, then it, it will certainly show up in the sequencing and you'll end up with less um, representation of the of the band you want. But but really without knowing more context I couldn't I couldn't speculate what else it could be. Okay. And then one is from the last one which is more general is from Sultan and they're asking um, if the quality of the reference genome, if that's important for an RNA-seq experiment. Yeah, it is. I mean, well, as with every answer to every question, it depends. Um, it, it, you know, if you're, if you're looking for, it depends what you want to get from the RNA data, right? If you're looking for expression, um, and clearly you'll need a reference genome that has uh, the right gene model and the right, number, the right genes in there to be able to um, map to it and look at expression, um, you know, uh, fusion detection, variant calling um, could be done potentially from the RNA data, um, fusion detection could potentially be done um, independent of the, re well, see, they're all really dependent on the reference, so it really, if you need any application where you're going to use aligned RNA-seq BAMs for downstream analyses, then the alignment to the reference is going to be, um, you know, the critical step there. And so having a good quality reference is important for that. Uh, if you're doing something else that's more discovery-based and you can look at, or, uh, you know, non-human other references, you may be able to map something on there. But, um, you know, for a lot of applications, having a good reference is, is important. Okay. Well, that brings us to the end of the seminar. So thanks, Niall for a very illuminating presentation and a great discussion. And thanks also to our sponsors, Kyogen. And finally, thanks to you, the audience, for taking the time to attend and listen in. If you've enjoyed the seminar and would like to view the video recording of the session, please visit the seminars page on bitesizebio.com. It should be available within the next 24 hours. There, you can also see the other webinars we have lined up for you in Bite Size Bio's webinar festival. So until next time, good luck in your research and goodbye from all of us at Kyogen and Bite Size Bio. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the webinar. To view the full video version of this and all of our other webinars, please visit bitesizebio.com slash webinars. Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Mentors at Your Benchside in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists.